So in the mid to late 1800s, the world was really just stepping into the modern industrial era, and it was doing so at an ever-increasing pace. I mean, just think about it like this. Someone who was born at the turn of the century, let's say somewhere between 1890-1910, if that person lived until 1990, which is not crazy, right? We've seen people live 100 years. We've seen people live 80 years. A lot of people live in between those they would have seen the world shift in some massive ways. They would have seen the shift from horses to cars, from no indoor plumbing to people having private pools in their backyard, from newspapers to radios to movie theaters to personal TVs in everyone's home, from no phone in anybody's house to people carrying a phone with them when they go around. They would have been born to parents who fought in the Civil War and they themselves would have lived through both world wars and seen with their own eyes the end of the Cold War. They would have read about the breaking news, the Wright brothers have flown in North Carolina and they would have watched in astonishment as Neil Armstrong took one great leap for mankind. It's really incredible to think about how fast the world changed in the last 100, 150 years. And it's primarily due to this sprint forward in technology, industrialization, and human innovation that many leading thinkers of the mid-18, late 1800s predicted the demise of religion in the world. Men such as Karl Marx, uh, Max uh, Weber, Emil Durkheim, Sigmund Freud, all predicted that due to this increase in progressivity, that religion would cease to have any real significant influence in the world. They were wrong. (laughs) While in some ways here in America, organized religion has taken a step back, religion as a whole definitely has not. In fact, people today may be more religious than they were at the beginning of the modern era, than they were 150 years ago. I think as evidence of this, uh, there's a resurgence of religious concepts into the secular public mind. Uh, Namely, what we're going to talk about for our time together is the concept of sin. Now, one might imagine with this progress of humanity, the idea of sin would be less relevant today. We're too enlightened for that. That's a thing of the mystical past. But again, you'd be mistaken. Sin is deeply entrenched in the public mind, and it still is today, maybe as much as it ever has been. Just listen to some of the titles of several online articles that are making their rounds. Seven deadly sins in the workplace. How about this one? Seven deadly sins for online dating. Uh, This one got my attention. Sins of greenwashing. Now, it wasn't the word sin that threw me there. It was greenwashing. I had no idea what greenwashing is. Greenwashing is the act of misleading consumers when businesses try to make their uh, products and practices look more environmentally friendly than they really are. Needless to say, this idea of sin hasn't gone anywhere Sin is real, and even those who don't personally believe in God have a hard time ignoring it. The broad concept of sin, at least as far as secular society goes, is really just failing to live up to an expected standard of conduct uh, that is held throughout the culture. It's the idea of violating cultural customs, norms, and laws, and it's something that we can see in every culture, in every society, not just today, but throughout history. Now, I will say it's really interesting to watch the logical cartwheels that a lot of people take to explain how we get this objective standard of moral conduct, apart from the belief in an objective external standard giver. But despite all that, the standards are still there. 
They may change and they may shift in times and in cultures, but they are there nonetheless. So what about America? Where do we see that today? What is the current view of sin today in the United States? Um, I think this is true. All of us see sin, but we just don't all see sin the same way. And I first heard Pastor Tim Keller really unpack this, and I thought he was spot on. He says, for instance, the left, uh, the political left, sees sin in injustice and inequality exercised against others, right? The, the marginalized are pushed to the fringes and treated unjustly. He sees, uh, the left sees uh, sin in greed and in materialism and the drive for more that crushes the poor and marginalized in our society. The rich get richer by eating the poor. The left sees that as sin and the right sees sin. They just see sin in the rejection of a divinely revealed moral standard, specifically around the concepts of sexuality and identity. The right sees sin in the denial of basic rights to human life that uh, are to the weakest among us, the unborn. Now, the truth is, right, left, boomer, Gen Z, and everyone in between, we all need a more comprehensive view of sin. Why? Because all four of those are sin. The Bible says clearly that it is sin to act unjustly. The Bible says clearly that there is a moral uh, ethic for sexuality and identity. The Bible says clearly that we are to treat the poor, marginalized, and stranger among us in ways that shows kindness and grace. And the Bible says clearly that life is sacred and made in the image of God. And yet when we find ourselves leaning more towards two of these, we see that our view of sin is shaped as much by culture as it is the Bible. You see, we need a more culturally comprehensive view of sin, but we also need a more biblically consistent view of sin. And that's what we're going to work through in this series. We want to see sin the way that God sees sin. And I think if we're going to do that, we have to start with an understanding of what sin is. Uh, so when we think about sin and the way that the scriptures talk about sin, because that's how we know what God says about sin, because the scriptures speak with the voice of God, they are the words of God, the most frequent words biblically used to describe sin describe it as a violating of God's, not the cultures, a violating of God's standards. Both the primary Hebrew and Greek words for sin meant originally to miss the mark or to fail in duty. That missed mark or that failed duty is the failure to live up to the standard of righteousness that God himself has established. That's what sin is, missing that mark. Other biblical words describe sin as transgression or overstepping set limits. They describe sin as rebellion, as incurring guilt, as iniquity, or even describing sin simply as wrongness. All of that is the way the Bible describes sin. But for our time today, what I want us to do is kind of lay out a simple framework so that we can understand what all of that means. Like, What does it mean to miss the mark? What is the uh, significance of iniquity? So let's lay out this framework so that we can understand what that means and exactly what sin is. Now, heads up, we're going to be jumping to a lot of different scriptures today. So uh, feel free just to take notes, go back and look them up later. <clears throat> uh, and you can just follow along on the screen uh, for right now. 
So we're, we're going to jump right in. What is sin? Number one, sin is objective. Objective. First uh, John 3, 4 says this. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Now that scripture is out of the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, and uh, that's what we use primarily here at the Orchard. All of our other scriptures are going to be in that. But I think the precursor to the CSB, the HCSB, maybe even says it more plainly. This is how it translates John uh, 1, 3, and 4. Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is the breaking of the law. You see, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, John speaks of sin a good bit. He insists that sin is evidence of a wrong relationship with God. He says sin is lawlessness, or maybe more specifically, sin is breaking the law. And here, chapter 3, verse 4, the way he chooses to write that implies that those two words, sin and breaking the law, are really interchangeable. They're the same thing. And the law here, of course, is the law of God. And the essence of sin is the violation of that law, the disregard for that law. It's the assertion of our own desire and our own will against God's revealed will. It is the preference of selfishness over obedience. Sin sets the self in opposition to God. Sin is the violation of God's law, objectively. Sin is objective. Uh, Secondly, look at James uh, 4.17. This is what James says. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says this, speaking of James. There are sins of omission as well as sins of commission. May the Lord graciously keep us from both forms uh, of this evil for his dear son's sake. So sin, omission, commission, what does that mean? Sin is not just the things that we know that we shouldn't do and yet we do them anyway, the violation of God's law. Sin is also the things that we know we should do that we leave undone. The, what James says, to, to know good and, and yet not do it. There are sins of uh, commission, sins we act on and violate and do, and sins of omission, things that we leave undone. So sin is also falling short of what we know to do. And finally, thinking about the objective nature of sin, Romans 3.23, Paul writes this. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this is pretty straightforward. All have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory. That is his perfect righteousness. No one can stand before God on the basis of their personal merit or their own goodness or their deep sincerity. All of us have sinned. And in so doing, we have fallen short of God's glorious ideal, God's standard. So what is sin? Sin is falling short of God's perfection. And this is objective, right? Sin is the objective falling short of God's objective standard. But it's more than just about those outward actions. It's also about our inward state, the posture of our soul, just as much as it is the outward conduct of our life. Both in omission and commission, inward and outward, thought and action, sin is objectively failing to live up to God's perfect righteousness. Sin is objective. Secondly, sin is pervasive. Look here in Ecclesiastes 7.20. It says this, There is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. 
Now again, this is pretty straightforward. It echoes what we just read in Romans from Paul. We are all sinners. Sin is pervasive. Sin is a part of us all. Let's go further. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Paul again writes, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself. Since you, the judge, do the same things. Now, for, for me, this is really interesting, and I think it's even speci- very specially, specifically relevant for our culture today, especially when we think about how secular society finds the grounds to create a moral standard by which to condemn others. In the very act of condemning others, those who condemn are, without even realizing it, condemning themselves. And we see this happen in, in two ways. First, Because often the people who condemn others are often very literally guilty of doing the exact same things. It is psychologically true that people tend to criticize in others the negative traits that they themselves are guilty of. We we hate in others what we despise in ourselves. Psychologists call this projection. And beyond that, nothing blinds a person more than the certainty that only other people are guilty and we don't see it in ourselves. So when we condemn others, we, we can condemn ourselves. The same thing that we see the political left accusing the political right is the same thing that the political right is accusing the political left. It's the truth. It just happens. But the second way is this. As soon as we judge another person, what we're doing is we are pointing to an objective moral standard outside of ourselves. We are saying they are guilty because this is right. Not just, I feel like this is right. That carries no weight. This is right. They are wrong. And by appealing to an objective moral standard outside of ourselves, that is a standard that will ultimately condemn everyone, not just the obvious sinner. You see, when we see sin in others, we affirm that there's also sin in us. Sin's pervasive. Look look again, James chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. James says, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Now, I think at this point, in talking about sin, many of us may be saying to ourselves, well, I'm not perfect. I've made my share of mistakes, but I've also done a good job of keeping a lot of the other commandments that Jesus gave us. I may not be perfect, but I'm better than most. See, here James makes clear that that thinking is is faulty and, and ultimately leads us nowhere. You see, it only takes the breaking of one law to make a person a criminal, and it only takes one sin to make a person a sinner. The example that James gives cites adultery and murder. Take a person who is perfectly faithful to his wife, but he murders someone else. That man's a criminal, even though he only broke one law. The same God gave both commandments. You know, this also echoes Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, that if we haven't committed adultery, but we have lusted after someone other than our spouse, we're guilty. If we haven't murdered anyone, but we have acted in anger toward them, we're guilty. If we haven't stolen anything, but we've coveted in jealousy, we're guilty. 
You see, any sin makes us a sinner. So sin is pervasive. It affects us all, and it affects us completely. And then finally, sin is not just objective and pervasive. Sin is deadly. Look at this again from Paul, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, guys, it all, it all comes down to this. The wages we earn by our sin is death. That is, that is what our sin earns. Sinners earn what they receive, death. By obeying the impulses of sin, we are storing up for ourselves the reward for our sinning. The severance check we get for sin is death. Now, when we say death, this death is physical and spiritual. It's physical in the fact that our very bodies, from the moment we are born, begin to expire. God told Adam and Eve in the garden that the day they were to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. When they sinned against his objective standard, they would die. And he, they did. From, from that day forth, they began to die. I believe Adam and Eve would have lived forever had they not sinned. So they began to die physically. But it's also spiritual. Because in that moment that Adam and Eve sinned against God, they not only began to die physically, they began to die spiritually, but that happened immediately. They were separated from the fellowship they enjoyed with God. So you and I both, the wages of our sin is death. From the moment we're born, we begin to die, but also our sin separates us eternally from God, who is himself real life. However, because of his great love for us, instead of the death that our sin has earned, God offers us the free gift of life through Jesus. Now, don't miss this picture here. Not only is the contrast between death and life, but it's also a contrast between earning and giving. Sinners earn what they receive, death, but believers don't earn anything. They do, however, receive a gift, the gift of eternal life, which comes by turning from our sin and surrendering to Jesus by putting our faith and trust in him as our Lord. Sin ends in death and grace ends in life. Death is the earned consequence of our sin. Eternal life is received as free and unmerited grace. The point here, death is the result of sin. Let's go back to James again. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This is what James says. He says, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So when we think about sin and sin being deadly and the wages of sin being death, we may say, well, Chip, that's not fair. The enemy's tricking me. The devil is tempting me. It's not my fault. Now, here's what you need to know. Sin is not just some external assault by our enemy. The deadliness of our sin lies in our very flesh, and it is evidenced by our own desires. Our desire, not just the devil, tempts and entices us. And that desire eventually gives birth to sin, and that sin ends its process with death. The progression from desire to death is an inevitable result now, our enemy may not birth this in us. It comes from our flesh. But make no mistake, the enemy will always try to hide that progression and end result from us. But it's a reality that we can't be ignorant of. And we can't shy away from. All sin results in death. So what is sin? Sin is objective. Sin is pervasive. 
and sin is deadly. So what then? We know that about sin. So what? What does that mean for us? What that means is this. Sin is a serious issue that we must take seriously. We can't ignore sin. We can't pretend it's not a thing. It's a thing. It's serious, and we must treat it seriously. How do we do that? Let me just give you three ways real quick in closing. Number one, we must look first at our sin. You see, when we think about sin, we're quick to look at the sin of others, think about the sin of others, but if we're going to take sin seriously, we've got to first look at our own sin. Just listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 and 5, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. You hypocrite! First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. If you're going to take sin seriously, you've got to look at your sin. Secondly, we've got to refuse to excuse our sin. Refuse to excuse our sin. Now, this is hard. And we all do it, honestly, we we do. And and we're going to look at why we do it and how we do it next week. So so tune back in. We're going to talk about this more specifically. But for right now, the point is that we need to get to the place that we're willing to say and we're able to say, I have sinned. Not just I made a mistake. Not just I messed up. You see, one way we like to say I haven't sinned is to rename that sin. We like to call it something that sounds better. Here's what I mean. Others may be prideful. We simply have confidence. Others are lazy and apathetic, but when we don't want to do something, we're just too busy. When someone else gets angry and blows a fuse, they lost their temper. When we act in the same way, we're just merely standing on our conviction. People no longer commit adultery. They have affairs. It's no longer promiscuity. It's hookups. It's not greed. It's drive. It's not materialism, it's comfort. The list goes on. One pastor said it like this. He said, when we do this, it's like taking the label off of rat poison, slapping one on that says Tylenol and put it in our medicine cabinet. As long as we can find a nicer label, we'll still take the poison not realizing what it is. John says this, if we say we have no sin, We're deceiving ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. We can't minimize our sin. Refuse to excuse your sin. And then finally, we must fight to kill our sin. Now, that's a weird way to talk about it, but it comes from Puritan writer John Owen. John Owen says this, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Sin is objective, it's pervasive, it's deadly. Either we're killing our sin, or our sin is killing us. We cannot let sin continue to run rampant in our lives. Sins of omission, sins of commission, in our actions, in our thoughts, Sin must be hunted down and put down. It's serious, and we have to take it seriously. And where this starts, and where we'll leave it today, is it starts by calling sin, sin, calling it what it is, and bringing it to Jesus. So maybe right now, God's working in your heart, and you're convicted over some sin in your life. Take it to Jesus. 
If you need somebody to pray with you, we have people right now who are willing to do just that. That's what they're here for. Reach out, comment on Facebook, click the request live prayer button on the website. We want to pray with you and for you. Let me pray for you right now. God, thank you for this time together to look at the serious nature of sin. God, I pray we'd take it seriously. And God, right now in the places of our life that you are convicting us, would you help us not to turn and run and try to fix it ourselves? But we would call sin, sin, and lay it down at the foot of Jesus, knowing that we are accepted and forgiven when we repent and surrender. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.